If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 11th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we present our second show of the new year, and it's one for the books, literally. As we said last week, we've taken a deep dive into the IMRU archive to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Violet Quill Club by visiting interviews with the three living members, Andre Holleran, Felice Picano, and Edmund White. But first, we join the Lambda Lit Book Club, the queerest book club in L.A., a program of Lambda Literary and co-sponsored with the West Hollywood Library. This book club highlights an eclectic mix of LGBTQ literature, including classics, unheralded gems, and buzzworthy new releases. Tonight, we drop in on a discussion led by former West Hollywood City poet Stephen Raines with Mysterious Skin author Scott Heim. But first, in case you didn't do the required reading, we asked the author, what's the book about? It is the story of two boys who have a similar experience when they're eight years old and then go in very separate directions with their lives. And then because it's a traumatic experience, they're sort of governed in many ways by their memories or lack of memories of that. And the basic thrust of the book is just how they come to terms with those memories and then what happens when they eventually meet again. I sort of see the, the book and the story as kind of a, a diamond shape. It starts in one point and then it, the characters go in sort of opposite directions and then they come together again at the end. And now, our meeting of the Lambda Lit Book Club is in session. I want to welcome everyone to the Lambda Lit Book Club. I'm Stephen Rains, and usually this happens in West Hollywood, but Due to COVID, we're now doing it via Zoom, and we thought we would open it up to, well, everyone who wanted to attend. So it's so nice to see so many people here. And also, with the benefit of doing it via Zoom is that we can invite authors to come in and talk about their books. So we invited Scott to join us here as we talked about his book, Mysterious Skin. So welcome. How are you doing during quarantine? Good. I feel a little guilty because... I feel like before quarantine, I didn't really leave my house all that much anyway. And a lot of the work that I did and continue to do is freelance copy editing and that sort of thing that I do here at home. So in some ways it hasn't changed my life that much. And I'm here in Boston and Massachusetts where I feel a little lucky. It's one of the places here in America where people actually do wear their masks and don't throw a fit at the Walmart. So yeah, it's been good. I should be doing a little more work of my own, but I'm, I'm not. I watch a lot of TV and I'm caught up on a lot of Netflix series and things like that. 
are those coping tools to deal with quarantine or is that just kind of a natural activity? Natural laziness and watching TV. I will say that I've gained 12 pounds since this started and I haven't cut my hair since end of February. So it's kind of an experiment to see um, before it really starts falling out how long I can get it before looking too crazy. But yeah, I'll be glad when it's over. I really miss going to a bar and having a beer and a hamburger. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us to talk about your book. And so this book came out 25 years ago, and I'm sure it feels like a lifetime ago. What was it like for you writing the book? What was the inspiration for it? I started writing the book when I was at Columbia, getting my MFA at Columbia. I was writing short stories at the time. I, I didn't really, I don't know, the idea of writing a novel seemed really scary to me. But a couple of short stories that I had written Something about them was similar, and I, at some point I realized that I could merge these two stories of two different people and kind of start making a multiple narrative out of it. And I think really all it took is a, another writer to sort of tell me not to be afraid of, you know, writing a novel and that what I was doing actually could be a novel. And now I think it's harder to write short stories, actually. I think when I write fiction, I always sort of think in terms of something more expansive and, and large, like a novel. There are less rules in a way to writing a novel than there are writing a short story. So if I ever write anything again, it'll probably be another novel because I think writing a short story is really hard. You know, you could really like kind of expand on a character and see like different sides, see a good side to them and a bad side to them by showing more than one point of view. So that was influential to me at the time. And I wanted to do even more and sort of bring in even more than two voices to it. Who were you reading at the time that was inspiring not only your subject matter, but how you were writing? I was reading at the time a lot of New York writers. I don't know, I think when I moved there, I was friends with Dennis Cooper and David Trinidad, the poet, and I met a lot of their friends. And so I was reading a lot of books by their friends and other young New York writers. And sort of when I started reading Southern Gothics a lot, I don't think that shows up really in my novel at all, but yeah, I was kind of obsessed with Flannery O'Connor short stories and I think also, like, I hadn't really read a lot of gay literature yet because I had just gotten out of my master's program in English Lit. So I'd, read, I'd been reading a lot of the classics. So, you know, it was like the early 90s and I was really kind of excited by reading contemporary literature, queer literature, sort of a lot of the writers there in an anthology called High Risk. I guess that term they were using, like subversive literature, which I always thought was kind of silly, but a lot of the writers in that book I was reading at the time. And that's Amy Shoulder and Ira yeah. uh, who did it. And also like David Trinidad's in it. So is um, Dennis Cooper and I think Essex Hemphill and Kate Bornstein. Like it was loaded with all the people that are so big today. And so that's who you were reading and kind of informing you. The subject matter is pretty bold for a debut novel. I guess so. I was lucky that my professors at Columbia, they encouraged that side of the book. I remember there was a class where the thing that I turned in for my it was my turn to turn in a story. And the thing that I turned in was what later became chapter two of the book, which from the point of view of a kid who is molested by his little league coach, but instead of writing about it as a terrible experience, writes about it as though it were a love experience and something that he's attracted to and, and proud of. And I remember when it came up for workshop, a lot of my classmates were shocked, disappointed, even had one person that was sort of angry about it. Whereas my teacher said, this is what's going to get people to notice your book. And this is what's going to set it apart from the other books about similar subject matters. So I guess I chose to listen to her rather than the people who told me that it was something I shouldn't be doing. So I guess I lucked out. In that. Did that also prepare you for when the book actually came out, where I imagine there was a lot of misinterpretations? 
it's funny when the book first came out a lot of the bad reviews or misinterpretations or anger that i felt didn't happen so much until the movie came out which is strange i think the experience of reading a book is very different than actually seeing the events of the book on the screen people seem to feel a different way when confronted with that sort of material i guess to me the book really seems a like one of the themes is how children navigate and understand violence. And so you have each character kind of trying to make sense of it. Like you said, there was the one character who kind of romanticizes it in his head and another one kind of his disassociation, he, he comes up with a story about aliens, right? Right. What was it about the subject matter of violence and especially sexual violence towards children that you were, like what was attractive about exploring that? Oh, wow. Uh... <laughs> I guess, you know, just the simplest answer is it's just something for whatever dark reason I've always been interested in. Not the actual violent act, but the psychology behind that. Not only from the perpetrator, but also the victim. And I feel like people always see things in black and white, and I, I'm more interested in the areas of gray that happen. I think that's what sort of the job of the literary fiction writer is, in a way, is to show the reader that nothing is all good or all bad. Really, I think anything I've written, I like writing about kind of dark subject matter. I want people to sort of not feel completely sympathetic toward the, the person you're usually relating to and also to feel some sort of humanity in the, the person that might be perceived usually as being the villain. I feel like that answer could have been said in 100 words and I made it into 600, but... No, well, what you're saying is you want the reader to hold the complexity of the characters, that instead of pushing yeah. it into this like black and white, you're representing the dynamics of the relationship. That's another reason why I like writing novels better than writing anything else, really. I think, in a sense, that is the job of the novelist, is translating the, the sort of complexities in human beings to, to, to a story. And there's also, you have these outsider characters, right? Just about every character in the book is an outsider. Maybe the sister, not so much. This story is really about kind of people on the fringe. Even the character's mom is kind of on the fringe. That, I guess, just comes from my experience growing up in the Midwest and always feeling kind of like an outcast for some reason or other. Growing up gay, growing up with a divorced mom who was sort of, I don't know, we didn't have much money and we were sort of because of my mother's job and her reputation, we were sort of outcasts in our community for a while. And all, you know, all of my friends, we were like the new waivers. We were always sort of the outcasts. It's just something I guess you gravitate toward in your writing. Even though your characters might not be based on you, I think in some ways they're based on your experience or your emotional experience. And definitely everything I've written is a reflection of me and my sister and my close friends growing up. Yeah, I can't imagine not writing about that, but we'll see. I do in the future. <laughs> well, you also have, so though this was your debut novel, it actually wasn't your first book. Your first book was a collection of poetry. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you say that as excitement. What are your feelings about the book of poetry? Well, it's, um, you hear people use that word juvenilia. I think, you know, I was kind of exclusively writing poetry and then I started writing short stories and I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And when I, when I applied to graduate programs, I actually applied in both. And I thought, well, you know, I'll apply and see what happens. And if I get in somewhere, then that's what I'll do. And this sounds gross, but like, 
Columbia accepted me in poetry and fiction. So I still wasn't sure what to do. I was like, uh, I guess I'll go and Texas in both. Um, but I realized as I started at Columbia that the poetry I was writing was getting more and more narrative. And so I would write these poems that were like, you know, 80 lines long with these really super long, long lines. And, and I realized like this really is, you know, I'm, I'm leaning obviously more toward fiction. But I think the background in poetry and the fact that I was reading so much poetry for so many years, I guess kind of made a, a sort of mark on my fiction writing. I think maybe I tend to have a more poetic way of, oh, that sounds so pretentious. I, I feel like I hope I have a more poetic way of describing things, but also um, just kind of in terms sometimes of how I write a narrative. Well, even the poetry you mentioned, like David Trinidad is very narrative and actually the book club read his book maybe a year ago. I know you, I remember you like Sharon Olds. Yeah, so yeah. You, so your attraction to narrative poetry, that makes sense. I was surprised revisiting your book, how many images are in both the poetry collection and okay. <laughs> This could be news to me because I honestly haven't opened that book of poetry in probably like 15 years. You're in luck, I opened it today. So <laughs> I'm going to mention some of the images. I would love to hear like what it was about those images that came up again, that resonated for you, that you used it in both works. And so the first one- You have something in mind? <laughs> yeah, the turtle. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess, you know, that's something that really happened. There's so many things that happen to you when you're a kid. And I guess I had a, a weird family and we grew up in a really weird area. But there are things that even when they happen to you, you know, like a whole day of weirdness could go by and then something happens and you're like, okay, you know, like other families aren't experiencing this. And I guess those are the things that occasionally pop up in people's writing and they don't even realize that it's a recurring theme or a recurring image. Is there a poem about that turtle thing? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes. Honestly, I, this sounds, I, I hate when writers say like, oh, I don't even remember writing that, but I seriously don't. I mean, I remember it in the novel, but I, I don't remember a poem about that. Yeah, it shows up. Well, what also shows up is a poem by the title of Brian Bloody Nose. Yeah, I assume no one is in this Zoom room who knows this person, but yeah, I grew up in a really small town. There were uh, 700 people in the town, and my graduating class had 25 people in it. And from kindergarten to eighth grade, my best friend was a, a boy named Brian who um, was this Catholic kid and very different from me, but um, I idolized him. He was just like a beautiful person inside and out. And then our freshman year of high school, he decided that he knew that I was gay. And so he sort of denounced me. And so this person that I'd been best friends with my entire life, like kind of became like my enemy for my years of high school and you know it's funny like now that I look back at it I realize like I think writing a poem about him and then titling my lead character his name even though the character doesn't really resemble him I think in a way that was my way of getting back or something I don't know getting when him I back, back or it was my act. high school reunion he, he refused to talk to me so he, I guess he still feels that way <laughs> oh Wait, when you said get him back, is that like have him back into your life or get back at, at him as in revenge? I wouldn't like do anything horrible in revenge, but I thought, oh, you know, I'll title my character his name or write a poem that uses his name where he does something sexual. I doubt he'll ever read it and I couldn't really care less, but at the time, I guess it was important to me. <laughs> well, also when you talk about those like wounds from childhood of like that rejection from other boys, 
I feel like baseball is so loaded for gay boys. <laughs> I, I feel like it's such a loaded activity for those who were able to participate and maybe were chosen last or those who felt so outside of sports. And so here you have just, I mean, already such a loaded subject matter baseball. That's one area where I felt different from maybe a lot of gay kids' experiences. My dad was a softball coach. He coached women's softball, but he was like, for, I don't know, if you went to like the world of women's softball in the 70s, everyone would have known my father. Like he was notorious for, during the winter, he would go around and like recruit really great sports stars from high schools and find out if they were good at softball. And then, you know, like his team got second in the nation one year and third in the nation one year. Like we had this amazing women's softball team. The good thing about that for me is he probably couldn't get like the stereotypical boy in a lot of other ways, but he taught me how to play baseball really well. So that was like the one sport I was good at. And I was this freaky kid that had like really long red hair and wore weird clothes and whatever. So I can remember like playing little league and getting up to bat and all the kids saying like, oh, she can't hit. Here comes the girl. She'll never get a hit. And then like getting a hit. So that was the one thing that I guess I kind of got the last laugh about. And because softball and baseball saturated my entire childhood, I guess in some ways it, I don't know, first novels are funny. You look back on them years later and you see how the biggest elements of, their ch of your childhood a lot of times like somehow insert themselves into your novel. So a lot of the things in the book didn't happen to me, but oh, my family and I saw a UFO. I was good at baseball. All these other things that were big in my childhood somehow like kind of inserted themselves into the book. Well, even that scene that you just described about going up to bat and actually being good at it is something that Neil experiences in the book. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've said, I've said this in a lot of old interviews probably, but the fun thing about writing a multiple narrative a lot of times is you can fracture your experience between the, the characters you write about. So a lot of my childhood resembles what Brian's does in the book, but a lot of it also resembles what Neil's is like. We'll be right back with our meeting of the Lambda Lit Book Club after this quick break. Don't touch that dial. A Friend of Barbie, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. American stand-up comedienne, actress, and media personality Rosie O'Donnell came out of the closet in 2002 as part of the act at the Ovarian Cancer Research Benefit at Caroline's Comedy Club. She said bluntly, I'm a dyke. Three years earlier in 1999, Mattel rolled out the Rosie O'Donnell doll, which was sold alongside the Barbie dolls. Unlike the skinny-sized two Barbie, the Rosie doll became Barbie's first plus-sized friend, which made her too big to fit into any of Barbie's outfits. In fact, the doll itself is on a different scale, which makes it impossible for the Rosie doll to sleep on the standard Barbie bed or ride in Barbie's fast car. The Rosie doll comes in a cardboard box that becomes a stage and includes a microphone for play acting. All yours in 1999 for $19.99. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Glenn Lash in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Now back to our meeting of the Lambda Lit Book Club. My undergrad professor always told me that after you publish a book, you should never go back and read it unless you absolutely have to for a reading or something because you're always gonna see like what you wish you'd done differently from 
a whole scene to like a, a word in a sentence or a line or whatever. So there's things now, especially 25 years down the road, where it's not that I don't remember so well, but then the, the book was made into a movie. So the things that they left out of the movie, I sometimes even have more of a tendency to forget are in the book. Or the characters, I used to have an, an idea in my head what the characters look like, but now when I think of it, like if you mentioned a character, I would think of what they look like in the movie. How was that experience too? That so the movie is what ten years old now? I think I, I can't. Uh, gosh, I think like fifteen, fourteen or fifteen. I mean, I remember when it first came out. There was such a buzz about it. In fact, my friend Michael mailed uh, me a copy. Oh, oh, I'll be able to tell you. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. What? Oh, uh, one of the main people on the film is is in the room, so he would be able to tell you exactly how long it's been. <laughs> oh, nice. Unfortunately, they're muted right now. So sorry. Um, what was it like for you to then have this whole other readership and for this book to have a, another life, you know, years after it was initially published? I'm one of the rare people who can say that, you know, as, as, a, as, as the author, it was, a, I mean, sort of across the board, a, a wonderful experience. It was a small independent film and it felt like a family. We were all, the cast and the crew, we all eventually, if not on the set while making it, we eventually got to know each other. A lot of us, you know, went to the, film festivals together and Greg did a great job. I think the, you know, the best compliment that you can get as a writer is for someone to, to adhere to your characters and your sensibility and your images as much as possible. And I think Greg did that. It felt like a real honor. I was just very happy with how everything turned out. And yeah, to this day, I feel like if I never really write another thing, oh, I think one of, you know, one of the highlights of my life will be the experiences I had with uh, the movie and yeah, like you said, the readership that expanded because of the movie. You know, a lot more people see movies than read books, sadly. And, you know, the, the great thing about the movie is it's you know, on DVD or streaming. And so it's always going to be out there in a way. It's also, my book's still in print. I don't think it would have, I don't think it would still be in print if not for the movie. So it's just been, it was a great experience. I, I can't think of really anything negative to say about that whole experience. And, you know, I, I meet other authors who are lucky enough to have their books turned into movies and they, you know, they say the absolute opposite. You know, they, they hate what, you know, the, the changes or the, what the screenwriter did or, you know, how the, how the movie eventually turned out, whatever. Um, so I feel very lucky. And I remember at the time feeling like it was so true to the book. Yeah, that's the biggest compliment in a way. Yeah. Um, and they're and just very, very small things that Greg changed and obviously some things he had to leave out but in general it's like you said it's very true to to what I wrote yeah and then you have we disappear and both books take place in Kansas right, right? so um kind of like your home state going back to it uh what prompted you to make that decision to choose Kansas as this location I guess the simple answer is it's just what sets me apart in a way it's where my strongest memories are from and I lived in New York for 11 years. I could write about that. I've lived here in Boston now for 18 or something. And yeah, I certainly have a lot of experiences that I could write about in the city, but uh, I feel like I, I like the material I like writing about. I like to set it in that um, Midwest kind of serene um, kind of what people see as boring or a place that 
bad things don't happen to people or whatever I like. That juxtaposition of maybe darker material or subject matter, juxtaposing that with um, kind of small town Kansas setting is what interests me. And you did that juxtaposition with uh, numerous times in the book from talking about like a violent scene to like serial, right? I mean, it, it kind of, it, it goes back and forth um, and you did it really well throughout the book. Um, um, I hope so. I, I, if, if I, if this thing that I think I'm writing now gets off the ground, it's going to be more of that. So <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of my favorite writers, you can kind of say the same thing about them. They, I don't know. A lot, of, a lot of my favorite writers, if you said a description of one of their stories or one of their novels, it could almost be a description of the other stuff they've written too. Um, I guess there's something, there's something both good and bad about that, but um, I don't know. I guess that might also be why we seek out certain writers because we appreciate their sensibility, right? And their perspective. Um, and you actually brought your perspective to a series of books on music. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was just sort of a um, a pet project. Uh, I had this idea that I, I was interested in people writing about the like the first time they'd heard a a specific iconic artist or band or something, and. I think it's harder to get in touch with people directly now on Facebook, but there was a time where you could just, you know, write to someone, you see, seek out someone's Facebook profile and then write them a note. And so I did that. And a lot of people, a lot of musicians that I admired, you know, thought it was a good idea. So they were like, oh, sure, I'll do it. Um, yeah, so I did that for a while. I think it was kind of a way to <laughs> tell myself that I was getting work done and focusing on a project, which, you know, which I was, but it let me put off uh, my own writing again for a while. Um, I don't know. It's probably time for me to get back to writing and finishing a fourth novel, but uh, I've been lucky. I've been working pretty hard doing uh, freelance copy editing and stuff during during the lockdown, and I, I I still have all these ideas for something new, but I haven't really been busy writing. But then again, you know, a lot of writers that I admire say things like when you're writing a book, a lot of the work, a lot of the actual hard time and energy of work is the sitting and thinking about it. So I always try to tell myself that. Did this book have a, a greater sense of urgency to write Mysterious Skin when you were writing it? Oh, definitely. Not only because I was at Columbia and it was, I wanted to finish it for my master's thesis, but... I think it was a lot more competitive then. Obviously I was a lot younger, but I had this, I went to Columbia and I think I expected Columbia to be a lot more people like me who, you know, like had taken out thousands in loans and come from the Midwest and, you know, new to the city. And in fact, when I got there, you know, a lot of the other students were, had come directly from other Ivy League schools and, you know, they were, majority of great people, but I kind of felt like the, the poor urchin or something. It was a lot, of, a lot of kids who had like amazing apartments that their parents were paying for. And it, it sort of made me work, want to work harder. This makes me sound just like a horrible person, but I, I, I can remember always telling myself like, I have to be the first one to publish a book, which I can't really imagine seeing a career, seeing the world like that now. Like, 
I'm more sort of in competition with myself, I think now than I was at the time. But yeah, when I was at Columbia, it was like, I have to finish this book and I have to get it published right away. You were also so incredibly young. How old were you when this book came out? Under 30, I can't remember exactly. And then also that outsider status you were talking about, it sounds like that was a motivator while you were in Columbia, that though you were the outsider, you were going to succeed and publish before everyone else. Yeah, I felt a little bit of that just because of where I came from. Where to start with closing out this? This was a great discussion. I really appreciate it. To remind everyone, the Lambda Lit Book Club is sponsored by Lambda Literary and the City of West Hollywood. And so, Scott, I really want to thank you for a book that came out 25 years ago. Your memory for what was going on back then is <laughs> incredible. So thank, thank you, everybody, for coming. It was the highlight of my last few months, to be honest. <laughs> Locked here in the house. Speaking of books, this year is the 40th anniversary of the Violet Quill Club, a group of seven gay male writers that met in 1980 and 1981 that helped transform gay writing into a literary movement. Tonight, we revisit past interviews with the surviving three, Andrew Holleran, Felice Picano, and, starting with perhaps the most influential, a talk with Edmund White, Edmund White is a fairly happy camper. I mean, the happiest part of my life is, I suppose, that I've been given this enormous reprieve because I was diagnosed as HIV positive in 1985. I probably was positive already by 79 or 80 because I was very active sexually. So I feel blessed in a way. Edmund White is a novelist whose personal life reflects the course of gay history in America in the last half of the 20th century. The 22-year-old White arrived in New York City in 1962 in the formative years of gay liberation. He was a participant at the original Stonewall Riots, and his early writing celebrates all the ecstasy and abandonment that soon followed. He was the co-author of The Joy of Gay Sex. He captured the excitement of Fire Island in Forgetting Elena and the gay social revolution in America in States of Desire. But Edmund White is perhaps best known for a semi-autobiographical trilogy of novels that includes A Boy's Own Story, The Beautiful Room is Empty, and The Farewell Symphony. His 20th book and 19th novel is called Hotel de Dream. This book is about the last two weeks in the life of Stephen Crane, who wrote Red Badge of Courage, and whom we all had to read in high school. Well, anyway, it turns out that he died at age 28 in 1900, and he was living in Europe, mostly in Sussex, but at the very last moment, he and his wife made a mad dash for it to Bavaria, where there was a reputable TB clinic, and he died technically in Germany. His body was shipped back to America and buried there. What I'm pretending in this book is that he was dictating to his wife, his common-law wife, Cora, a novel called The Painted Boy. And there's some basis for this fantasy on my part. A very close friend of his called Huneker, who was a cultural critic of the time, wrote a note. It's not clear whether it was a letter or a journal entry or what, in which he said that he was walking down the street one evening with Crane in 1892 when Crane was 22. And they ran into a boy who at first they thought was a beggar, and then they realized he must be soliciting because he was wearing um, mascara. And Crane was revolted because he'd never seen or even heard of gay people before. He was a very sheltered youth who had grown up with a Methodist minister father and a temperance worker mother in New Jersey. So now he was in New York. Now he was a journalist. Now he was interested in low life, but things still were capable of surprising him. Anyway, he got interested in this boy. He bought him dinner. 
He even offered to pay some of his medical bills, and he began to interview him about gay life. And according to Honecker, he sat down to write a gay novel, a novel about a gay male prostitute that would have been a companion piece to his book, Maggie Girl of the Streets. But Crane's best friend was a Midwestern he-man writer who said to him, these are the best pages you've ever written, but if you continue with this project, you won't have a career. And he might have been justified because this was the time of the Oscar Wilde trial, and it just definitely was not on to be gay. But I kept thinking, what would have happened if he had finished it? It would have been the first real gay novel in American literature, written by a heterosexual man who was a masterful writer, a canonical writer, and uh, it would have been uh, extraordinary. So I thought it was fun to interweave the story of Crane's last two weeks with his wife, whom he loved madly, and who was a strange person. She herself was a prostitute who kept a bordello in Jacksonville, Florida, with the name Hotel de Dream. So anyway, what if I interweave this story of him and his wife, Cora, with this other love story of the painted boy and this man who falls in love with him? You had to write in Stephen Crane's voice as well as your own. How much research did that take? Well, I had to do quite a bit of research. I, I was lucky enough to be made a fellow of the Cullman Center at the New York City Public Library, and they give you a small salary and an office and a computer and access to 7 million books and 40 librarians and hundreds of thousands of visual images about the history of New York. So, for instance, when my characters uh, go to the Everett House, because in the original uh, little one-page summary that was written by Honecker, he had said, oh, we took him to dinner at the Everett House. Well, you look up Everett House, and that was a luxurious hotel that used to be on um, Union Square in New York. Then you see pictures of what it looked like. Then you even get the menus. They have a complete collection of all the menus. So you can say precisely what they were eating on that day. So it's a fantastic amount of material that's available for the writer. And I must have consulted several hundred books. New York's very well documented, of course. Not as well documented as Paris, uh, but very well documented. What surprised you most about gay life at the turn of the last century? The gay people didn't really know how to think about themselves. There, there were so many different competing theories about what it all was. Some people thought it was a, sort of a, an excess of comradely love. Others thought it was it was the third sex. Other people thought they were androgynes. Other people thought they were inverts. Other people thought, I mean, it'd be a bore to go into every one of these theories. But there were so many different competing theories, and, and people themselves seemed intensely confused about it. A little bit like the old Mediterranean world that still exists in certain North African countries, the active partner in a male-male relationship, and the only one who was gay was the passive one. And that seemed to be kind of predominant in this world, too, that the passive partners, the bombs, would dress up like women and think of themselves as being much like women. And the other ones, the active partners, were called just a man, jam. They had a word for it, just a man. And they were just men who could either go to men or women. But since they were doing the penetrating, it was the act that defined the person rather than the gender of the person with whom they're having sex. What do you hope readers take away from Hotel to Dream? I think of it as a double love story, and I think it's a passionate love story. I hope it is. I mean, some people have been kind enough to say they find it to be that. I guess that's what I want, is people to recognize that this heterosexual love affair, strange and bohemian and 
weird as it might be, is very parallel, really, to the equally strange gay love affair between an older married man who's a banker and this adolescent uh, painted boy. This has been a conversation with Edmund White. His latest book is Hotel to Dream. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Each false step you take will make good reading. No one sees the times you kept from cheating. Since Hotel de Dream in 2007, Edmund White published Jack Holmes and His Friend in 2012, Our Young Man in 2016, and A Saint from Texas in 2020. We'll be right back after this quick break. Don't touch that dial. The fabulous Liberace dial coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known as Liberace to his fans, Walter to his family, and Lee to his friends, Liberace became an iconic over-the-top musician and performer. Born in 1919, he learned piano at age four, which later led to his stellar career of showmanship. His trademark was wearing lavishly sequined and rhinestone-studded costumes. Always performing at a grand piano with a candelabra, his hands displaying huge jewel-encrusted rings. In 1986, one year before Liberace's death, F&B Doll Corporation issued their doll, Liberace, Mr. Showmanship. He stands 17 inches tall, is fully jointed, and made of vinyl with painted facial features and molded brown hair. The doll is dressed in loads of lame, including silver pants, black cummerbund, and bow tie, and magnificent silver cape with stand-up collar. A letter from Liberace was included in the box, but no miniature candelabra. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Glenn Lash, in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Armistead Maupin, author of Tales of the City, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Next, a 1999 conversation with Andrew Holleran about his book, In September, The Light Changes. They seldom looked happy. They passed one another without a word in the elevator, like silent shades in hell, hell-bent on their next look from a handsome stranger, their next rush from a pauper, the next song that turned their bones to jelly and left them all on the dance floor with heads back, eyes nearly closed, in the ecstasy of saints receiving the stigmata. In 1978, writer Andrew Holleran helped win literary credibility for explicitly gay fiction with his first novel, Dancer from the Dance a fictional but realistic portrait of the hedonistic gay life in the late 70s, which were, in retrospect, perhaps the last sexually free moments of the 20th century. It received rave reviews at the time, and today is acknowledged as a classic of modern gay literature. Andrew Holleran is also the author of Nights in Aruba, Ground Zero, The Beauty of Men, and his new book is In September, The Light Changes, The Stories of Andrew Holleran. You said in an earlier interview that you wrote Dancer from the Dance in a state of innocence. What did you mean by that? I meant that I'd never had a book published, and that's a state of innocence. <laughs> you have no idea what you're doing. The whole thing happens as in a dream, really. And then on your second and third book, you're more aware of what can go wrong and things like that. So th- in that sense, it was a state of publishing innocence. Is there a lot of pressure when your first book hits so big? It was terrible. It was the classic second novel syndrome, and believe me, it's awful. Because the odd thing is you don't know why they liked the first one. And like most people, you want to please. So you're thinking, did they like it because it was funny or did they like it because it was serious? And was it funny or serious? And you have no idea. 
So you just stumble on with that pressure. Yeah, it is pressure. It's not fun. I read in a review of one of your books, Andrew Holleran is an expert in the poetry of sadness. Is that fair? Are your books sad? I guess so. I'm obviously not leaping to answer you, so let me think. Uh, to me, a lot of the stuff can be read uh, either way, uh, particularly my last novel, The Beauty of Men, I thought had humor in it, but a lot of people, I think, thought of it as a non-humorous or dire book. This book, In September the Light Changes, I wrote because I thought I wanted to do a light book after the last one, and when I finished it and saw all the stories, I thought, my God, this is just as bleak as The Beauty of Men. Why do I do that? Partly because that kind of stuff is easier to dramatize than happiness. I was speaking to a friend uh, last month, and we were at the end of our phone conversation, and she said to me, you know, she said, I just got a great part-time job I like. It'll earn me just the right amount of money I need for the summer. I'm going to paint my house. I love the story I'm working on. She said, you know, Andrew, life is good. And I hung up the phone and I thought, what do you say to that? You know, if she had said, my life is a mess right now, we would have been on the phone for another hour and a half. But that simple line, life is good, kind of ended it. Um, it's simply a dramatic fact that it's easier to write about not connecting than it is about connecting sometimes. Let's talk about the new book. In September, The Light Changes, the stories of Andrew Holleran. There's a lot about youth and beauty and aging in some of the stories. It's funny. The last novel was about that, so I tried to stay away from that explicitly, but it does creep in. Are aging gay men who've survived AIDS becoming now invisible? There is an invisibility thing that happens as you age, and it's quite upsetting at the time, and then you get used to it and it doesn't bother you at all anymore. It bothers you a little. As you age, you do become less of a sexual object uh, to many people, and that's that. There are other forms of relating to people, and the terror that gay men have that after a certain age they're never going to have sex again for the rest of their lives is really ridiculous. You enter a period in which you find that people, younger people who are attracted only to older men suddenly are interested in you, which is very freaky, and um, you're never going to be without. But that feeling of being part of the fraternity, of being part of the... 20, 30-something herd that goes to the parties, goes to the bars, and is constantly cruising one another, you do um, surrender your membership to that group. There are many years that separate Dancer from the Dance in your latest book, and the community that we live in, the gay community, is pretty much unchanged, A once B, B once C. There's this unargued assumption that we should all be in, in monogamous pairs, that that's the highest goal and ideal, and perhaps it is, but it's obvious that only a fraction of gay men, from my observation, have that in their life. And the reasons, I think, we have not really looked at. Andrew Sullivan wrote in one of his books, uh, and Paul Manette has said this too, that we're not examining ourselves enough. We don't ask those questions. Why aren't we? The usual words are intimacy barriers or um, internalized homophobia. Who knows what it is? I moved uh, to Washington, D.C. this winter for the first time, and I was living in the kind of a ghetto in the DuPont Circle area. I'd been living in a small town in the country. I was impressed with the fact that suddenly I was living in a neighborhood where there were gay men everywhere. On the way to the grocery store, they were at the gym, they were all over the place. And I thought, my goodness, uh, I'm back in, in the gene pool. And I concluded that it was harder, probably, to meet someone in that environment than it was in a small town in rural Florida um, because of all these mysterious causes that we're not examining, that we're waiting for Mr. Wright or we're too critical or we don't believe in the fact that such a union can take place. I don't know what it is. Obvious exceptions. There are exceptions. I know lots of couples are in long-term relationships, but a lot of people, my age in particular, are successful, happy men who seem very uh, likable and good in every way, and they're still answering personal ads. 
That was a weird interview. Thank you. Do you think it was okay? I thought so. You do? Since in September, the light changes in 1999, Andrew Holleran published Grief in 2006 and Chronicle of a Plague Revisited in 2008. Our final visit is with Felice Picano. Felice Picano could easily rest on his laurels as a pioneer of gay literature. His work spans over a quarter century and moves effortlessly between genres. But Picano still has a lot to say. This year, he contributed memories of friend Robert Farrow to the anthology Loss Within Loss and released a semi-autobiographical novel, Onyx. Onyx is about the last two years of my life in New York City when I was losing my partner and my best friend to AIDS. Essentially, when the sort of well-to-do, middle-class houses in the country and cars life was totally falling apart. And um, what I wanted to do is I wanted to write a book about that that would show what that was like for people who may not have experienced that, almost as a sort of warning to uh, the younger people who are mainstreaming so avidly that this is not going to save them if something really goes wrong. And also because I wanted to tell that story and to memorialize a really difficult uh, period of my life. And because I'd not done anything about it, this all happened about a decade ago, and I'd done nothing about it, and I thought it was time to write about it and, you know, get it off my chest. Um, and I was very worried about how people would uh, react to something like that, but the reactions so far have been amazingly positive. And what makes it a little bit different, I think, from most books of this sort is the fact that the main character, who's more or less based on me, at the same time that his lover is dying, begins a physical affair with a straight, quote, straight, younger married man, which lasts throughout the entire period of the book. And so I'm going out of my way to open up the can of worms, the big scandal <laughs> about straight and gay men in America. And uh, so much we hear so much about um, the violent connections they make, and there are other connections that they make also. Tell me about Loss Within Loss. This is an anthology put together by the Estate Project, uh, Alliance for the Arts, which seeks to show what happened as a result in the artistic community in the United States as a result of the AIDS epidemic. And nobody's really done anything about this before in terms of um, actually memorializing people or just even listing people who were lost. It's very easy for artists to slip away. You say, well, they haven't had a new painting lately. I haven't seen them on television. I haven't seen their new book. Right. I think there are 17 or 18 artists who are specified in it. And they're of such a diverse group that I think we have to pay attention as a result of that. Let's talk about Robert Farrow, who you celebrate in the book. Robert Farrow was a friend of mine um, and was also part of a group called uh, the Violet Quill Club that I belong to, along with Edmund White, Andrew Holleran, uh, Robert's uh, partner of many years, Michael Grumley, Christopher Cox, and uh, George Whitmore. We came together in the late 70s, I figure about a decade after Stonewall, in an attempt to try to put together a serious gay literature in this country. And it was a benevolent conspiracy of seven people with various hangers-on. And it seems to have taken, it seems to have worked. But Robert was one of the people who was the social glue of the group because it was a social group as much as it was a literary group. Edmund White said it was about the desserts. 
<laughs> well, the desserts got pretty fabulous, I have to admit, but the desserts were part of the social glue also. Um, no, what it was about was we were supporting each other's work. We were all writing gay literature at a time in which there was no such thing. Every once in a while, there would be a gay book published or, or a homosexual book published, let's put it that way. Uh, and there were a great many of them at the time, you know, like two every year or something like that. But there was nothing that really dealt with the fact that there was already in existence a gay community, which was all across the country and to some extent all, all across the world, which we knew existed because we lived within one. So we just really got together and said, uh, well, for example, uh, let me give you an example of how this worked. Edmund White, who was at that point a very well-known writer within a literary set in New York City, which was when at that time everything was really happening in New York City. Although he had many homosexual friends in literature, including some very famous people, none of them were writing gay literature or none of them were interested in the idea of gay literature. They didn't see much point to it. So he really had nobody to discuss what he was doing with. Neither did I, neither did Andrew Holler, and neither did anybody, in fact. So the idea was us to get together, to read the works that we were doing in progress, you know, works in progress, and to sort of check up and confirm for each other that this was the right thing that we were doing, and that it was a good idea. A few of the members passed away. More than half. So many wonderful artists, singers, dancers, writers, that would have gone on to leave behind a larger body of work. Uh, their lives cut short, leaving behind not very much. In terms of literature and just among my group, Robert Farrow wrote, I think, I think it was five books. And although he said he was done and that he had written everything that he had to, when he died, he was 47 years old. I'm 10 years older than that already, and I know that there were books that I have written as a result of undergoing those past 10 years. So obviously a man as talented and thoughtful as he was would have written more and it would have gotten, I, I, I believe it would have gotten better and deeper and more interesting. So the losses to us, and that's true with many different writers. Uh, there were so many that we lost to it. Many writers bristle at the term gay writer. Is that something that bothers Felice Picano? Not at all. Do you think that there is a gay male artistic aesthetic? Well, if there is, I don't have it. <laughs> I wrote my first memoir, which is called Ambidextrous, The Secret Lives of Children, because all the growing up stories that I had read by gay people were about sensitive youths who had been artistic and readers and, you know, who felt tormented by their friends. And looking back on my own, my own life, I realized I was probably one of the people who tormented them. <laughs> and, and I had played sports and run around with my, my own group. You know, we lived on our bicycles and I grew up as a regular boy, you know. I mean, you know, we, we did odd things like sniffing glue and having sex together. But aside from that, it was a pretty ordinary American childhood. And um, I wrote that book just to make sure that there was something out there showing that you didn't have to have a sensitive, overly aesthetic youth to turn out to be, you know, gay the way I was. Where do you see gay literature going? All over the place. <laughs> I think uh, gay literature is, is very healthy and doing very, very well. So what is a gay book? Well, I don't know what it is. What I write about is gay life in America, more or less today. And uh, people say, well, you know, do you have to write about that? No. Why do you write about it? Well, because not enough people really are dealing with issues that I write about. And so there seems to be so much material out there still to be uh, written about. You know, so much is happening. You know, our lives are uh, getting longer, they're getting more complicated, and I think it's time uh, that uh, people who are interested in writing about them do so. We have no lack of readers, that's for sure. This has been a conversation with author Felice Picano. 
I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I'm giving you a longing look Every day, every day, every day, every day, every day I write the book Since Onyx in 2001, Felice Bacano published Fred in Love in 2005, Tales from a Distant Planet in 2006, Art and Sex in Greenwich Village in 2007, Contemporary Gay Romances in 2010, 12 O'Clock Tales and True Stories, Portraits from My Past in 2011, 20th Century Unlimited, Two Novellas in 2012, True Stories 2, People and Places from My Past, and Nights at Rizzoli in 2014. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. And a reminder, masks, social distancing, hand washing, and sanitizing precautions were all taken in the production of this show. Be careful out there. In closing, We are sad to hear that L.A.'s oil can Harry's in the Studio City neighborhood of Los Angeles is closing. Los Angeles LGBTQ bars are in a shutdown crisis. But this club had been in existence for 52 years without changing its decor. And its loss is especially tough. So we close tonight's show with a musical tribute to the LGBT landmark. Good night. Since 40 years ago, there's a place that you know to drink and dance the night away. If you came to dance, you take a chance of the ABC board finding you gay. But now times have changed, partners don't rearrange, no siren and lights warn to switch. Now it's okay to be openly gay Most cops are in drag or a bitch Cause I got friends at Oil Can Harry's Where the drinks are cold And the pool table is there to play And no loser pays Come on in for well drinks and sex But you'll never find Cause or bud Yes, you got friends And oil can harry Disco was the scene For the dancing queens Flashing lights and disco balls But then disco died Something new was tried And now wood covers the walls Cowboys, sisters, bears, and boy toys Have a home thanks to Bob and Bird The bartenders are fab We'll give you a tap When you get hot, take off your shirt Cause I got friends at Oil Can Harry's Where films have been made 
And charities can raise lots of funds And they make tons Way back when the campers were so campy Now the troopers are so trampy Yeah, you got friends And oil can harry Let's raise a beer to the businessman of the year The man who made this bar your home He's the youngest of three, loves his family Doesn't have to bother with the comb RV camps at the beach, math he used to teach But oil cans is his life he first worked the door, now he controls much more He's an honest man and made John his wife Yeah, I got friends at Oil Can Harry's Where the miller's cold and the DJ spins the tunes all night And I feel alright Thanks to Bob, I don't have to hide got a place to show my leather pride Cause I got a friend in my promisino Yeah, I got friends at Oil Can Harry's Where the miller's cold And the DJ spins the tunes all night And I feel alright is full of generosity, always helping the community. Yeah, you got a friend in Bob Tomasino. Yeah, I got friends at Oil Can Harry's where the miller's cold and the DJ spins the tunes all night.